Before we start the show, I want to tell you about Serve HQ. Every church leader knows that having trained and engaged volunteers is essential to successfully accomplishing your mission. But if you're like most leaders, you know how tricky it can be to onboard and equip people for your team. What if there was a resource to make it easier? I'd love to recommend ServeHQ to you. ServeHQ is simple video training courses that help you equip volunteers and develop leaders. You can create your own training or use their video library. You can even automate next steps to onboard new people. Check it out at servehq.church and the link will be in the show notes, servehq.church. So one, get honest about what it is that you need. I think this idea of being a hope hunter is a really kind of cool idea. Maybe maybe become a hope hunter. It's worth it, my redneck friend says. So um, look look for hope. Look for it. Look for where hope is uh, eternal. And, you know, I mean, it, it's not lost on me. Every Almost every scriptural story of God showing up is with people who are cynical and despairing. Um, so also... I maybe maybe get excited that your cynicism and despair might not be the end, it might be the beginning of God speaking to you. You know, so Moses is completely given up, completely cynical, completely dis- despairing about anything to do with Pharaoh, and boom, there's a burning bush of God speaking to him saying, Hey, I'm not done. Because hope really is this like glimpse of God at work in the world. So if you whatever you need to do to just pay attention. <laughs> pay attention. So sometimes I tell people like, go on a walk, but instead of just walking, behold instead. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanne LaFleur. This is season nine, episode five. Today on the podcast, we have my friend, Danielle Strickland. She's a speaker, an author, a justice advocate, and has launched a ton of things into the world like MB, that's In My Backyard, and Brave Global, and Women's Speaker Collective, and a ton of other initiatives. She's really like an entrepreneur for Jesus. And so I can't wait to dive into the conversation about her latest book. It's all about hope and the other side of hope. But thank you so much to the sponsors who are making this whole podcast season possible. Serve HQ. You can train your ministry volunteers, your leaders and new members online fast and easy with Serve HQ. Thanks to Compassion Canada. They're lifting children from poverty in Jesus name and a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society, Scripture Untangled. So thank you so much to them for making this podcast possible. And as we always say, if If you haven't subscribed yet to our YouTube channel, there's a huge back catalog of all these podcasts now, eight plus seasons, but also we have a ton of tutorials. We're releasing a bunch of new ones, a few dozen new tutorials this fall. We don't want you to miss out. We're trying to freely equip you as practically as we can to be a better communicator of best news in the world. So you can do that through our YouTube channel and also our digital church Facebook group. The links to all this stuff is going to be in the show notes. But let me tell you a little bit about Danielle Strickland and her new book, The Other Side of Hope, Flipping the Script on Cynicism and Despair and Rediscovering Our Humanity. It's a very cool book because on one side of the book is like the theory and the ideas behind it. And you literally flip it over, flip the script, flip it over. And the other side is story. She's an amazing storyteller. If you don't know her from having experienced her in person, live on a stage before reading her books, um, you're going to love her storytelling. You're going to love this book. And we're going to dive into the conversation now with Danielle Strickland. Danielle Strickland, welcome back. 
to Word Made Thank Digital. You. I I didn't know that you'd want to come back because you've been on a couple times. And so um, when we talked about maybe coming on, you coming on to talk about your latest book, I was delighted. Yeah, well, I'm a fan, so it's my <laughs> delight. Um, what? Well, and since the last time you've been on this podcast, a lot has happened in the world. A lot has happened in your life. Um, so before we dive into that, can you just give us, let's get, for those who don't know who you are, let's not assume, give us a bit of an overarching view. Give us the 10,000 feet. Who is Danielle Strickland? And then let's dive in and talk about hope. Well, Danielle Strickland is a follower of Jesus who seeks and tries to mobilize people towards following him well. Uh, and that has led me in my life to the Salvation Army for 23 years. I did lots of church planting and discipleship making and um, justice work, advocacy, and um, accompanying women specifically out of uh, trafficking a lot around the world, different contexts. And then that led me to uh, really falling in love with the idea that the church broader big C across the world and all of its different flavors could be a beautiful mobilized group of people and that I might be able to help a little bit. So I launched a bunch of nonprofits and all, all along all of those lines, all of those things that I've traveled with for discipleship and justice and, um, and seek to just kind of try to do what I can where I am. Yeah. And, and sort of like a serial entrepreneur for Jesus, yeah. I would describe you as. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things that go on in my life and beautiful things that I'm super proud of having played a little part of or leading or launching or trying. It's all kind of various fun stages of entrepreneurship for sure. Well, and your, um, your voice, your writing is, um, impactful for those. I mean, it's funny, like even within Christian circles, there are lots of sub circles. So some people would know you and be familiar with your work and other people, of course, would have no idea who you are. Um, but I am continually drawn and, and amazed actually by your writing because just because people are good at speaking doesn't mean that they're good writers. Often that doesn't translate because it's a different form of communicating. But this book, yet again, The Other Side of Hope, I read it in the last couple of weeks, yet again, is moving, challenging, emotional. Um, I don't usually start with this question, but I feel like we should start with this question the cover of the book. Uh, I want to talk about what this book looks like. And can we start there? Um, I think that's a good way to into the whole story. Yeah, that is also good because in case anybody buys it, you might think you got a bad copy, which has happened <laughs> one time already. <laughs> I think my publisher, I don't know how many uh, notes they've gotten, but from one definite radio host, he was like, uh, I think I got a bad book. And I was like, oh, flip it over, maybe read the subtitle. And he was like, oh, I get it now. So the book is a flip book. And uh, the premise, the idea of the book comes from a trip I took to South Africa with a friend of mine who's an artist. And we drove like an hour and a half out of our way to get to this art gallery that featured this artist. And then when we got there, the art curator of the gallery had decided to do a thing called the flip side and where they had taken every piece of art in the entire gallery and flipped it over. So all you could see was the frame. And she was furious, of course. I was intrigued. So you're what saying the earth? whole art gallery? Yes. You're looking at not the, the other art, side. You, the other side, like not the thing you came to see. <laughs> yeah, and guess what, Joe? Guess how they all looked? 
ugly, I guess. And the same, like right. they all okay. looked very common and they all looked huh. very ordinary. No matter how incredible the artist was on the other side of their art is this frame. And uh, it doesn't have to be extraordinary. It's just a frame that's hammered together that's solid enough to put art on. So when it came to something like hope, which I think most of us want the glorious display of hope, what we think about when we think of hope is the art. Um, I wanted to, to sure, let's have a look at the art, but also let's flip this thing over. And what, what holds hope? What, what, what kind of life do we have to live to display hope on? And uh, had, a, I hope, a helpful conversation about some framework of our life that might actually look super ordinary, but has the capacity to display hope. Yeah, so this one side of the book uh, looks like the back of a painting, and that's sort of what you could call like the theory. And then the the more beautiful side, the artistic side of the cover, um, if you flip it, is stories. Um, <laughs> you have spent your career in a lot of um, – well, you've literally been sent, maybe not even by your own choice, to kind of hopeless situations. <laughs> um and, and so in that sense, you, you maybe have gotten like the master's degree, you know, you got the MBA in hope, um, mm. through, through seeing it lived out firsthand. So did you start with the stories or did you start with the theory? Huh? That's a good question. I tried to start with the theory, but I'm a story person. Uh, and that's all that would come to me for the first, uh, little while at least. And I think also it was a little cathartic. It was when we were all shut down. I was writing this during COVID, uh, kind of stuck like the rest of the world. And um, so that there was a bit of a cathartic journey for me and just airing, telling, looking for this uh, traces of hope in my own experience, both in my family history and my own family. This, stories I've shared here are stories that are quite vulnerable um, and transparent about my own uh, backdrop of darkness in my own life. And where God showed up, where hope was found. And then it travels around the world. Really, I, I, I had a beautiful time um, remembering uh, and resonating how God surprised me and taught me and showed up and gave me hope in places where really there wasn't a lot of hope to be found. So it was a really beautiful journey for me. So I started with the stories mm -hmm. and then the theory uh, part worked at that. <laughs> yeah. And... And I guess why now, like you're sharing, why now these stories? Because I think in many ways you're sharing stories that weren't, I don't think that were very public before. Like you're, you're sharing actually some very personal, vulnerable moments. I mean, one of the, one of the things I think about is, you know, talking about the death of a friend and your mom calls you and you're trying to keep it together. This, you know, these are very personal things. Why now? Why is now the time? You've you've been telling stories for years, but why did you feel like now was the time to share these stories? I think in one sense, um, I did some work, you know, the last decade, huh. uh, just personal work, therapy work on untangling some of these truths of my life and connection points in my own story. And so I think if I had to share them sooner, I would have been sharing them out of an unhealed, you know, sort of wounded place. I think now I'm sharing them from a wounded place. So that's one thing. I think I've done some healing and it's enabled me to share um, without any sort of fear. 
And then I think I really was emboldened by the courageous witness of truth tellers in the season. So these last couple of years, you know, survivors of sexual abuse have risen up and shared their stories. I remember reading this, uh, The Last Girl. It's a, a Yazidi sex slave um, in Iraq who's now a, US, a UN ambassador against rape. And, um, and she tells the story in the middle of the story she's telling. She says, you know, I used to believe that these things that happened to me were my shame. Hmm. And now I've come to understand it's theirs. Right. And even just this idea of like telling the truth about the darkness actually exposes the darkness and the shame isn't on you. You know, so there's a little bit of that. I, I think I caught a little bit of that courageous spirit of people who just tell the truth and recognize that when you do tell the truth, it begins to disseminate uh, darkness. So I was hoping that might also be true. And then I just really, I love stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think some of these stories, if people are familiar with you, they might've heard one or two of these, but there are stories here that people have not heard before, um, mm -hmm. that I hadn't heard before. Um, but let's talk about the ugly twins, cynicism and despair. Sure. Um, because isn't that how most of us are fighting not to feel right now? Um, we're looking at the, the political climate, the religious climate, um, just the, the newspaper. I mean, nobody reads the newspaper. I don't know why I said that, but the news, <laughs> uh, there's a lot to be despairing about and there's a lot to be cynical about. And I think the older we all get, that starry-eyed start to life starts to wear off and we find ourselves as we age more cynical and maybe a little bit more despairing about change. T you, but you do some writing on like sort of the theory of this. Can you talk to us a little bit, but maybe let's, let's don't go there before we go too much further, the types of despair and how these two things play out. Yeah. I mean, I, I do want to just say quickly, like I did some training at the start of the summer for some young people, probably 18 to 25 year olds, about a, a few hundred of them at least. And I asked them, you know, what are the greatest challenges to your generation? You know, just for my own interests and you know, they were very forthcoming, but one of the first people to respond said a complete decimation of public trust. <laughs> wow. And I was, I was like, right. So when we say like, we get cynical when we get older, I just want to say like cynicism and despair is something that I think are the, the twin giants, uh, that are facing this generation Wow, and, um, that are maybe one of the biggest temptations also that are, pre that, are that is present uh, and so gigantic, you know, almost like if you can, if you can picture David and Goliath, you know, almost Goliath is that are, you know, taunting the children of God, you know, and uh, people are scared to, to come up. So I, I would say cynicism just very, very quickly is the loss of faith in other people. Um, it's the loss of, it, it's the idea, cynicism is the idea that every other person is out for themselves. And the birth of cynicism, you know, I mean, I think it's been around as long as people have been disappointing people. So there is some truth, you know, you're not like poly optimists. That's not how we fight cynicism. But this idea that everybody is out for themselves and nobody is, um, is kind or genuine or good. And I think it's deeply connected to the way we view ourselves. I think there is this really disease of our culture that views ourselves through a lens of we're not good or kind or worthy. And so it's almost like a mirror thing that happens in our lives. Mm. We assume everybody else is the same. Um, and that connects, again, to the theory side of thing with this idea that um, 
we've all been pretending to be better than we are for a long time. And uh, I think we've been pretending that we're better than we are because we bought into what I call a, a Hercules myth, which is this, this idea that in order for us to succeed or to be successful or to even be seen as successful, we have to be better than and greater than uh, all the other humans. And so we set ourselves up in this kind of Herculean ascension. And of course, it, 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 it's, it's not real. It's not true. It's not authentic. And you know, like the other side of an art piece, it doesn't have to be glorious. We don't have to be better than all the other sides of the art pieces. We're, we all just have to hammer together some existing frameworks to make our lives solid and ordinary and useful. So that's the cynicism part. And then, of course, despair, I think, is just where cynicism goes. It is the absence of hope. Uh, it's where we go uh, all the way down cynicism's trail. Yeah, if to this, the end, then that. Yeah. Then everything is unredeemable. You know, like everything is lost. And, uh, and that despair, I think, is felt in the way that we live our lives, the way we think about our future. But I also think that despair is sometimes rooted in what we believe about God uh, and how we interact in the world. I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Danielle Strickland. I want to remind you about Scripture Untangled because the Bible can feel overwhelming, confusing, and hard to believe. But Scripture Untangled is this new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society, and it's bringing you interviews with culture leaders, leaders in ministry, and Bible thinkers to help you be inspired to dive into the Bible and understand it. On the other side of cynicism, there's hope and there's something in the Bible for you. So you can listen for free and subscribe to Scripture Untangled on your preferred podcast app. Go listen today and the link is down in the show notes. All right, back to the conversation with Danielle. Yeah. Well, it is it is such a disorienting time. You and I were having a conversation recently about this metaphor. Um, maybe you can, because you're better at telling stories than I am. You know, this idea of we were in a place where all, there'd been a storm come through and the trees got all torn out. And so, or not all, but a lot of trees got torn down. And so it was disorienting, like how we made, how we understood uh, where we were had changed because this thing had come through and wrecked it. Uh, um, can you tell us more about that? Like we feel disoriented right now because of all this kind of more and more bad news that just keeps coming at us, especially when I think about church stuff. Yeah, I mean, I love that image. We were together on a walk even and then just paddleboarding around an island. And like, I literally got lost on the lake on a paddleboard because I didn't recognize my way back because so many trees have been uprooted that I didn't recognize the island, you know? And we were just commenting together as people navigating the space of church, how disoriented, like how the uprooting of what we thought were these things that would never be moved. So you talked about how you were a little girl and you like this tree was just so sacred to you and you just thought it's so big and it's so old and it's so awesome. Nothing's going to move this. And then the storm came through and uprooted this tree and it's gone now. Yeah. And I think it was such a great like uh, indicator of how we feel about some, you know, champions in our lives, some speakers, some leaders, some church uh, folks, even some institutions. And we just thought like, these things are glorious or they're big or they're rude. They're, like there's nothing that's going to move them. And then all of a sudden they've been toppled and it's a disorientating time. I think what is true of all orientation, which is true of this moment as well, is when you're in that season, what you do need to do, the most important thing is to orientate yourself, you know, and even what you orientate yourself to really matters. 
So when we're talking about if we're going to talk, we're going to go to church spaces, then if our hope is in the institution or if our hope has been in the people or if our hope has been in the leader or if our hope has been fill in the blank, then it's crazy disorientating because we've lost that. And that's a true loss. But if our hope is in God, in who God is, if our hope is in who we are in relationship to God, if our hope is in that connection, uh, then we can find our way together. We're not alone. And we're not lost. And there's another way of navigating our future. One of the natures of hope that's been most surprising to me. So a couple things like one, I think we bought the lie that hope is happy. Hmm. So we feel like if we're not happy or if our lives aren't happy, if our circumstances are perfect, then we're not being hopeful. And I think that's what's driven us to this kind of cheap hope, you know, that's just like optimistic. It's just optimism disguised as hope, but it's not really hope. <laughs> it's just optimism. And like, then we think I if hope we're not, I will go to Florida this winter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or it's even like if we start thinking. saying, yeah. Or even if we start saying the truth about things. So let's mm. say like we're whistleblowing a, a, a church sex abuse thing. Yeah. People would be like, that's not very hopeful for the future of the church. And you're like, I think you've misunderstood what hopeful is <laughs> because hopeful is not untruthful. It's not Pollyanna. It's not a denial of the presence of wrongdoing or wrong. Uh, it's this rugged, determined belief that God is working in the world. That's what hope is. It is a determined belief that God is at work in our world. And I think because we believed hope is happy, we've also believed despair is, uh, or sorrow is despair. Hmm. And so we've avoided all things difficult or hard or sorrowful because we think that's the absence of hope when really when you discover hope, and this is what the stories are meant to help with, is I've been in places where you would think, I mean, there's not a happy thought in mind. There's not a happy thought in the neighborhood. Like there's no Pollyanna in your way out of the circumstance. And yet I've discovered God at work there. And that's hope. And when you discover that hope, what happens is you don't have to fake it anymore. You don't have to be happy all the time to be hopeful. Those, you understand that those are different things. And then like, like David, you know, said in the Psalms, or like, now where can I go from your presence? There's nowhere. I can go to the heights. So things can be awesome. There you are. I can go to the farthest reaches of the world. There you are. And I can go to the deepest darkness, even inside myself. And there you are. That's a posture of hope. And so how do we then talk about the hard things? Um, because as you said, I think um, and maybe a criticism against you in the last number of months that you've been trying to um, retrain or reteach people about with, with, in your own small world is just this idea of like, well, we shouldn't talk about these difficult things and these sexual abuse cases or whatever. We shouldn't be talking about this on the internet because it makes the church look bad. You know, it makes, why would anyone want to come to church or come to know Jesus if we're just going to constantly be airing our dirty laundry? Um, but how would you approach that? Because obviously you are the kind of person who calls the thing what it is. And what are you discovering about how that plays out with, it doesn't sound very hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing I've discovered about hope over my life is that hope is honest. Hmm. It's relentlessly honest. That's what makes it so hopeful as <laughs> it's not a pretense. It's not pretending. So I think this has to do with identity. So Again, it's this addiction to this Herculean myth, even for church structures that suggests like it's only when we're climbing up that we're at all attractive because we're better than and we're greater than and we're different from everybody else. But it's actually in if you ever get to a recovery meeting, if anyone's ever been to a recovery meeting, 
one of the things you're asked to do in a recovery meeting, if you're a recovering addict, is you're asked to share your experience and hope. That's how they call it, a sharing of your story. It's your experience and your hope. And as someone begins to share the most difficult, darkest moments of their life and how they found grace there and how they found God at work there, something begins to happen in the room. And it's really hard for people to understand that don't understand getting to the deepest, darkest places in yourself. But there is a relief. There's like a holy, hopeful relief. And it's a shared hope that happens. That's why they call it your experience of hope, because something happens as you air that darkness, as you release that shame, Mm. that actually the light of God can get into. In that light, like hope is not a principle that I hang on to. Hope is not a plaque that I put on my wall. Hope is not a stagnant. It's not even hope cannot even be something I once had. And so now, therefore, I have forever. Hope is alive. Mm. It's living. It's an element of God himself. So hope has to be found in this moment. It's eternally present. Hope, I have hope now. (laughs) Not hope for then. I have hope for now because God's at work here. So part of what I try to say is the more honest we can be, the more hopeful we can get. And that it's really fear that keeps us pretending and fear that keeps us covering and fear that keeps us locked in this uh, pretense of better than and different from. It's when you get honest that real hope can enter the scene. And once real hope enters the scene, when we're honest, then we can be real. And that authenticity is actually what everybody's after. That's the relief everybody wants in life is to get off this hamster wheel of pretending. Hmm. Well, I, I think of it as this idea of the death and resurrection of Jesus that we want to jump right from one to the next. Like... If it's up to the the disciples, you know, like, like he dies, it would be really nice if, if he came back to life a few hours later. <laughs> um, you know, they're going through this like terribly despairing, kind of disorienting, grieving few days um, and then have to, uh, you know, then discover hope kind of on the other side of that. I guess what I mean is like, when we're in the midst of like a terrible church scenario or just a difficult thing in the world, a difficult thing in our own life, we, we want to just jump through to like the happily ever after moment, but that's not how it goes. We kind of trudge through this ugliness um, in the middle. And yeah. That's, yeah. And death, like absolute death to lots of things, death to what other people think of us, death to what we thought, we were death to what we had hoped, put our hope in, you know, there's a lot of dying before there's resurrection. And I think what's cool about hope is the presence of God in all of it, right? Is that God is present in all of it. And to recognize God's presence, even in leading us in this season in the church, I think God is leading people uh, with courage and power to seek truth in this season. That's God at work. That doesn't just happen or else it would happen. (laughs) over and over again. That's like something special going on in the world right now that God's doing that we should be paying attention to and celebrating. What is God doing? Oh, I see. He's bringing light. Hmm. And I was reading in Matthew's gospel the other day and the, the, the writer Jesus himself says, you don't light a lamp and then hide it under a bowl, you know? And I thought to myself, huh, sometimes you do. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you light a lamp and hide it under the bowl because you're scared of the light. 
Right. You know, but not, not the light of the world. No, no, we're not scared of the light. Not at all. Because mm-hmm. actually that light is the presence of God at work in the world. And that's what gives us hope. So I had a great letter, Joe, if it just to, to finish this section off of a of elderly lady who wrote to me basically saying, I'm super disappointed in you. Like you should not have gone public the way that you did with the sexual abuse stuff at the beauty house. Like I, this, I really felt like this was a really bad move and poor leadership and bad judgment. And then she said, I had a conversation with my 29 year old daughter. And she mentioned in that conversation that she would have been done with all things, Jesus, if it weren't for what you did Hmm. and that what you did inspired her in the way of Jesus. And that even though she's a little disillusioned with the church, she's going to hang on to her faith. And she said, so I guess I'm sorry. (laughs) And I guess I get it now. Thank you. And I thought, you know, that's a fascinating letter because I think that is, I think there is a whole generation and it might not just be old people, it might just be the way that you think about life, but there's a lot of people who are just clinging on to this idea of reputation and image and what other people think. And we've been groomed sort of in this acceptance of like pretending together that things are better than they actually are. Hmm. And there's a whole other group of people. And I would say the vast majority of humans right now who are tired of pretending and who just want to live in in some honesty and some authenticity. And even if that authentic place is broken and a little bit bumpy and not perfect and not slick, people would rather authenticity than the pretense of something that's not true. Hmm. Well, when I think about this idea of the Herculean myth that you talk about, this like superhero and that, you know, we create this, we may, we say we want a King to be like everybody else in the church. You know, we Christians keep saying we want a king like everybody else. We want this CEO. We want this superstar. We want this Hollywood celebrity type leader. We don't say it that way, but it is what we seem to create uh, out of our own talented leaders, (laughs) whether they have the character and capacity to handle it or not. Uh, But when I think of just culture in general, a friend of mine tells me the story of um, a comedian, uh, not a Christian, just a comedian who had a lot of popularity. And then it turned out this guy had a lot of like failures in his personal life. He was, I don't know, cheating on his wife or whatever. There were drugs and alcohol. I don't know. There were a series of problems in his life. And for a while it was like he was canceled. Um, And he was able to come back and has regrown uh, his following, his audience. I don't know if it's at the same scale. I don't understand the details, but the point is he was able to talk honestly about his struggles. Um, And he's a comedian, so I'm sure he's making jokes about them. And talk about how he is trying to become a better man. And people have sort of come back to coming around him and have decided, of course, they were never expecting this comedian to be perfect. Um, I say that to say, like, in the church, what is this balance between, you know, how do we not set up a leader to fail because we've expected them to be all powerful, all knowing, all good, but then also the accountability piece where as Christians, we hold leaders to a standard. We expect those who lead us and teach us to carry a certain level of character, integrity, responsibility, um, which is not the same for a comedian, (laughs) but, but at the same time, like, how do we, how do we allow a person to be a human being while also, and, and so having spaces to talk about their struggles without, uh, you know, you can appreciate what I'm trying to say. I think what's, this is a tension. 
Well, I mean, I created a way of life, like a, a framework, which I share about in the book as a, what one of the things that's been so helpful to me to be as authentic as I can be and honest about uh, who I am. And also that um, whatever that baggage is, that weight that comes on a leader with this Herculean idea that I have to be better than I actually am and I have to appear at least better than I am. I think that's all the recipe of cynicism because the cynicism is internal. I'm not who I am. I'm self-serving. I'm the jerk. Like, you know, and I think that there's a lot of leaders that kind of carry this like deep sense of depravity. I, I don't think it's been helped by a lot of theological talk about how horrible we are as human beings as well. It's kind of just solidified that narrative. Um, you see the life of Jesus vastly different, you know, from this cynical worldview. I mean, he is always seeing God at work and then partnering with God and seeing that kingdom come. And this is part of the being present to God at work, even in our own lives, is how we fight against cynicism. Um, so one of the things I talk about is the difference between spectating, which is where cynicism grows and festers and, you know, lives and participating, which is where hope is found. And, you, you know, you, you can experiment with this even in your own life, but even about your own life, if you're going to spectate your own life. You're going to turn into a critic and a cynic of your own life. You're going to participate in your life and actually work towards getting better. You're going to become hopeful about that life. Same person, same life. You're going to be, and the same is true with everybody else. So I would say as a leader, my calling to leaders is to take responsibility for their own lives. You are human above all other things. That's who you are. And every human has responsibility to get real and authentic and honest and uh, work towards the healing of their own lives. So there is no external code that's going to correct leader imbalances. I think there are some things to look for and some things we should put in place to help protect people from harm. But for the most part, uh, a leader can check off external codes as much as they want and still be dishonest and right. lying even exactly. to themselves. So I think for me, that way of life infinitum, just getting really honest with a, at least one other human being, a daily prayer, a practice of connecting with God and, and letting God talk to me, and then sort of a monthly intentional practice of serving and, and praying, uh, that those rhythms have been super helpful to keep me honest and to keep me authentic in my own life with God and my own life with others. I'm not sure it's not a magic bullet. It won't work for everybody. But I would say if, you, if it's helpful and you need something, by all means, go to infinitumlife.com and use it. It's free. Um, but I would say to leaders everywhere, like it is time to get off the Ascension uh, Hercules myth. Uh, it's taking us to very destructive places and to get humble. And uh, humility is defined by me as agreeing with God about who you are. Come into agreement with God about who you are. And that isn't, you aren't terrible, horrible, no good for nothing. You're a human and there might be some brokenness and there might be some pain, but uh, get honest and then get help and be the best human that you can be. And this is, you know, Jesus literally introduced himself everywhere he went as the human one. He's not ashamed of being human. He was proud of it. And I think there is this sense of like, God is at work in the world, helping humans to be okay with being human again. And that's that last tagline of this book is rediscovering our humanity. Like you're an ordinary human and that is not an insult. That is a compliment. Thanks for checking out this conversation about hope with Danielle Strickland. I wanted to pause that conversation because I want to talk to you about this idea of where hope comes from, this idea of transformation, the hope that brings transformation. Well, what does it even look like? 
I think one of the places I've seen it evident is in the stories of former Compassion-sponsored kids. That's the graduates or alumni of the Compassion program who are now adults, and they're telling their story of how sponsorship impacted them. Like I think of this guy named Eric. Have you heard his story yet? He grew up in Compassion's program in Uganda, and his father died. He was the breadwinner of the family, and then extended family members took everything that they had left financially. There was nothing left for Eric's widowed mother and all these kids she had to raise. And he considered himself a nobody. He had nothing, he said. And then he received this news that somebody was coming in, a life-changing person. And his person was a sponsor named Dorothy. And I love this because even though he's an alumni of the program, they're still in touch today. He and Dorothy, who was a sponsor. So child sponsorship brings hope. It transforms lives. And you can find out Eric's full story. You can check it out and learn more about sponsoring children at compassion.ca slash if dash only compassion.ca slash if only link down in the show notes. Back to the conversation now with Danielle. Yeah. Well, it's this, I think of this first Adam and Eve moment where they're told, you know, that they, if they do the thing they were told not to do, they could be like God. That one of the first temptations, you know, worries that we have is being human is not enough, that we need to be more than human to be enough. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Being human has always been enough. Um, this earthy, fleshy human. Um where you know, I'd I'd like to to get a story from you if we can. You're such a great storyteller. Can you tell us a story from the book? And I'd also love to know um, where you are seeing hope right now. Um, in whichever order you like to answer those questions. <laughs> Um, let me tell you a story that's not actually in the theory section, but it's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, sure. Okay. Just to mix it up a little bit, but all the stories are epic. According to me, I, I just, I think they're all epic. Some of them will be familiar. I have preached some of these stories, but I really wanted to write them because they get a little bit lost in the oral mm-hmm. sort of tradition. I wanted to kind of listen out there. Um, some of the people that are in those stories, even though their, their names have been changed, asked to be part of the storytelling, which I think is also kind of neat. Um, but anyway, this story is in the theory section. It's really about this understanding that I've developed. And now I think more fully understand that hope is an essence of God at work in the world, that, that, which is also what makes hope so potent, so powerful, whether or not you know it as God, whether or not you can name it as God, when you touch it, you know, it's eternal, right? This is only three things will remain. And hope is one of those things. It's an eternal quality of God. So, um, I was, uh, friends with a guy who was a hunter. He was a, he called himself redneck owl and he was a hunter. And every year he would go hunting and he had all the camouflage and, and anyway, all the things. And he never caught anything year after year after year. He never caught a thing. And I, I remember saying to him one day, Al, like, are you just a really bad hunter? Like <laughs> what, what is happening? And he goes, Oh no. And he told me the story when he was a little kid, his dad took him hunting for the first time. And he's just like 12 or something like that. And, um, and he said, um, uh, he, he did all the things that his dad told him and they were sitting there and they saw this deer and this fawn and its mother. And his dad's like, okay, count to three, pull the trigger. And then when it came time to pull the trigger, he couldn't do it. Hmm. And his dad did it instead, killed the mother. And he said, as soon as he realized the mother had been shot, he just bawled and bawled and bawled. He could not, he was sobbing. He could not pull himself together. And his dad's like, suck it up, be a man. Like, this is not what you do when you hunt. But he said, I was so brokenhearted. And so I said, so I still don't get it. Like, but you go hunting every year. 
And he goes, yeah, Danielle, have you ever seen a deer in the wild? And I said, what? He goes, have you ever just seen a deer in the wild? And I was like, I, not very often. You know, he, goes, <laughs> it's, he said, it's worth, it's worth it. And what this guy does, he takes his son. What he does is he goes out, he does all the hunting stuff to behold a deer. Like he does he the just, hiding and the quiet and the camouflage. Just to see the deer, just, just to, to see, see it in the wild. Cause he said, it's worth it. Yeah, it's worth it. And wow. I, 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 I think for me, like, I remember that story being so powerful, like just to behold, to do all that work, just to behold something beautiful in its natural habitat. And I think in a way, like I've become a hope hunter. Hmm. Uh, and I think maybe all of us are called to this, to put in the work, to do all the things necessary to get to a place where we can glimpse hope at work in the wild, you know, and that's where hope is best seen in the wild where you least expect it, where you actually have to pay attention and where you can kind of glimpse it, but also like, it's also gone quick too. <laughs> it's a living thing. Yeah. Well, and I think of, of your own story, some people might be familiar with it or not, but there was in your younger life, maybe a time there, <laughs> you wouldn't have had like, wouldn't have said, we have a lot of hope for Danielle's future, you know, when you were young, but can you think of some of those people who were hopeful for you? Um, maybe were, were hopeful where you were not, um, where you were in the cycles of cynicism and despair in yourself as a young person, um, who had hope for you? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is part of the beautiful work of reflection. You know, there actually are quite a lot of people in my life that had hope in areas that I never had hope for. Uh, my mom was one of them. You know, my mom, my mother was always, even in the throes of like drug addiction and jail and all the stuff that I went through and even just causing a lot of pain to the family. Uh, my mother was always, uh, relentlessly, I wouldn't say she was hope filled, but she was like clinging to hope. Mm. There were <laughs> she crumbs. just refused. Yeah. Like the apostle <laughs> Paul crumbs. said, like, I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner mm. of hope. Right. Mm. I just can't, I can't let go or I refuse to let go. So I think my mom was one of those, like I refuse to let go. And then there was a woman named Joyce uh, Ellery. She's passed on now, but she was a Salvation Army officer who used to come pick me up from jail, like police stations and then visit me in jail. And um, she never, she was not much of like an orator in terms of like, she wouldn't be like, Danielle, I'm so hopeful for your future. You know, there'd be none of those words, but her actions demonstrated a rugged, determined, hopeful hmm. posture, right? She just kept coming and, uh, wouldn't stop, you know? Um, and I think that's, you know, hope is also demonstrated better than it is spoken about. So that's another thing is we live, hopefully, uh, we don't just talk, hopefully, um, and then I, you know, there's this hilarious prophetic moment I talk about in the book where a judge who is supposed to be sentencing me, uh, lets me out of jail and says, go be the leader you were called to be, which is shocking. Wow. My mom wrote it down. The whole court just kind of was like, what? And, um, there was like elements again, there's that like element of this, like living hope that's somewhere in this mess of a human being. There might be a leader in the future. None of us had really thought that through. Huh. Um, if to go back to this metaphor of, um, half the, you know, a bunch of trees that got torn up and fallen over in a storm, there are other trees that remain. So when I think of that, the three that remain faith, hope, love, mm -hmm. um, what, 
that that in a, it can be disorienting when a lot of trees fall down, when the things you thought would always be there, the leader you thought would always be there, the person, the idea, the theology you thought would always be there um, collapses. Um, but what remains for you? Like, where are you seeing hope? Because we do need something to orient ourselves in such a disorienting time. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, you know, it's so where funny. are some of those markers? Well, Joe, I was actually just literally thinking of physically looking at, so I'm at your cottage last week or something like that. We're looking at this big tree you used to look at, this space, and this big tree has been uprooted in the storm, and it's disorientating, but at the same time, now we can see the whole lake. Right, we couldn't see. It was blocking our view. Right. Yeah. The tree was blocking this, like, big view of the lake, and now this tree's gone, but now we can see the lake. And I feel like in many instances, that's kind of what's happening for me as these trees and they're sacred and they're beautiful and they're being, you know, they're being uprooted. Of course, we know the way that nature works. All of those trees, regardless of whether they're standing or uprooted, are going to nourish the ground and they're going to grow some beautiful things anyway. Hmm. But I can, I think I can see a view. I I can see a wider, uh, boundless kingdom of God. You know, the, the, the strength of the boundless love of God. I can see people beginning to take responsibility for their own healing and their own truth. I can see the courage of people being true to Jesus and to themselves. I can see a collective witness to that. So like I'm involved in a whole bunch of uh, beautiful new initiatives, for example, global peacemakers, which is like these, these kids, you know, 18 to 25 year olds around the world working in refugee camps and like grassroots fragile contexts who are getting together in discipleship to talk about being formed by Jesus in a way that would bring peace to the world. I mean, that's a boundless view of God's love. You know, I just got off a Skype call with some women who are trying to release other women into church planting in new ways in the season. We're aiming for 5,000 of them. So if there are young females who have never thought about this, but want to want to think about what it might look like to birth faith communities in the season, I think there's a, a whole future for that. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on. Like I said, this infinitum stuff, this guided journey, I'm going to be going in October on uh, St. Cuthbert's Way, an old ancient path of St. Cuthbert with my 12-year-old son and a bunch of other folks and their kids talking through what does it mean to live into adolescence to become a human that you like and a human that might serve the world well. Uh, what a hopeful thing, you know, I mean, I could go on all day, you know this about me, but there is so many uh, views that I'm getting of this, the whole lake, uh, as these big, big old things are uprooted. Mm. And for those, you know, listening who are resonating with this, right, they're like, yeah, this is me. I need that view. I'm feeling the grief, the disorientation. I recognize the cynicism that leads to despair in my own heart, my own mind, my own soul. Um, do you have any just very practical, like this week, <laughs> is there, maybe you want to lead us in an infinitum prayer to close off, but, it, or is there, um, you know, somewhere to start? So they should read your book. That's, that is one of the action steps. Go get the book. I love the audio book too, because you get to hear Danielle say it to you in her own tone and her own humorous style. But, uh, yeah, like what, what's something you just want to encourage people. I mean, you're, you're talking to people all the time about this. Where's somewhere you just, these people are messaging you on Instagram and everywhere else. Where's somewhere you're telling them to go and start. 
Well, a couple things. I think we, we mentioned hope isn't happy. It's honest. So the more honest you can get, the better it is. So maybe, you know, stop wasting all the energy and pretending and denying. That's never a good use of your, your skills or your efforts. So one, get honest about what it is that you need. I think this idea of being a hope hunter is a really kind of cool mm. idea. Maybe, maybe become a hope hunter. It's worth it. My redneck friend says, so um, look, look for hope, look for it, look for where hope is uh, eternal. And, you know, I mean, it, it's not lost on me. Every, almost every scriptural story of God showing up is with people who are cynical and despairing. Um, so also, I mean, maybe, maybe get excited that your cynicism and despair might not be the end. It might be the beginning of God speaking to you. You know, so Moses is completely given up, completely cynical, completely despairing about anything to do with Pharaoh. And boom, there's a burning bush of God speaking to him saying, hey, I'm not done. Because hope really is this like glimpse of God at work in the world. So if you, whatever you need to do to just pay attention, (laughs) pay attention. So sometimes I tell people like go on a walk, but instead of just walking, behold, instead, like go on a walk looking for where God is at work in your community and in your world. Uh, when you're talking to friends, go on an intentional journey to ask them, where is God at work? Whether or not you're going to use that language or not, doesn't matter. But like, where are the evidences of God um, present in these moments for people? Mm. And sometimes it's just literally the more honest you get, and the more open you get. It's in friendships, like it's in connection, it's in truth, you know. For me, I practice this way of life, infinitum life. So every day I, I literally say, I am open now to see you at work in my life and through my life today. And it makes a massive difference just to even open your eyes to see what God is up to. Yeah. Um, Danielle, before I want to, I think we should end with one of those infinitum prayers because we've mentioned it a few times. I would love if you could lead us, but before we do, where do you want to send people? Tell your Instagram, your book, you know, where do you want to send them to your website or where do you want them to go? Yeah. I mean, you can get the other side of hope anywhere books are sold. Um, you can go to daniellestrickland.com and then that'll direct you to all the other places. So, um, I can tell you all the other places or you can just go to the one place and then just go to all the places. Yeah. Awesome. Um, great. Yeah. So I, I do this daily prayer. This is a confession and a declaration on a daily basis. Maybe it'll be helpful to you if you're listening and maybe a good way to start building a framework. Uh, in your life where, where hope could be seen, right? So I start, I usually raise my fists up, like I'm, I'm going to be fighting and I make this confession. I confess that my natural human posture is to try to fight it out or defend, um, to control. But I choose as a disciple of Jesus to open up my hands, hold them up in a posture of surrender And I say today, my life is not my own. It belongs to you, God. Uh, You can have all there is of me, all my burdens, all my shame, and you can have all my gifts and all my blessings as well. I belong to you. And then I hold my hands out in front of me in fists, uh, like I'm hanging on. And I make this confession. I confess my natural human posture is to keep and to hold, and to take, and to grasp. But I choose as a disciple of Jesus to open my hands and my life in a posture of generosity. Freely I receive. And it's here that I just name the things that I need for today. Not for the rest of my life, just for today. What do I need 
today. It might be hope. It's yours. Wisdom. Strength. Patience. Kindness. Whatever it is that you need, you can receive. And then I just make this declaration. Everything that I've so greatly received, I'm going to give away. And the final posture is to cross my arms like I'm uh, judging, <laughs> like I'm standing on the sidelines. And I, I make this human confession. I confess my natural human posture is to spectate, it is to judge, it's to critique. It's to stand at a distance, it's to say it's not my problem. But I choose, as a follower of Jesus, to open up my hands, my posture, and my life. And I say to others, the deepest needs of the world, people I don't even know and haven't even seen, and those even closest to me, you're welcome in my life. I'm here for you. You matter. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Danielle. Thank you, Danielle, for this conversation. And thank you so much to our sponsors for making this possible. Compassion Canada is back and they're lifting children from poverty in Jesus' name. The new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society, Scripture Untangled, and Serve HQ. Train your ministry volunteers, your leaders, and your new members online fast and easy with Serve HQ. Next week on the podcast, brought to you by these amazing sponsors. We couldn't do it without them. We have Pastor Jay Kim. He lives in Silicon Valley and he's talking about analog church. The guy from the tech hub of the world is going to talk about analog church, analog Christian faith. So don't miss out on it. You can find out all these conversations on our YouTube channel. Would love for you to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode and don't miss all these free tutorials we have coming out there. And always we can continue the conversation on our digital church Facebook group. Links in the show notes. See you next week with Pastor Jay Kim.